bowling. Hello. Yes, good. Yeah, we're good. Okay. So, yeah, hello and welcome back to Projecting. And, uh, yes, yes, uh, I don't know. I was going to say something clever, but I completely forgot what it was going to be. Anyway, forget it. Ben is back. Sarge. Sarge has returned. And, uh, it's nice to be here again. Yeah, man. You're the first. Uh, well, I guess you're not technically the first returning one because I did two in a row with my brother. But you're the <laughs> first. Did one. Came back late. You know, so I'm glad we, we upheld that uh, desire to do that. I'm excited because there's new stuff to talk about. It's always, lot, new, always awesome. new media to blab about. Well, it's not like you have opinions on things, Ben. No, no. I just... <laughs> assertions that i make, assertions that you make. That's it. so um yeah man so what have you been up to since we last chatted obviously a lot of new i remember you were getting really excited because a lot of uh i think you talked about it on the podcast too a lot of like black protagonists black leads and various television shows and you're seeing a lot you know finally some just minority talent being on yeah broadcast. obviously it's not you know far cry from where we need to be but you seem to be excited about the direction it was headed I guess last time we were here, it was just after Daredevil. So that was before the fall TV season. So two years ago, a buddy of mine and I, who watch a lot of stuff together, we made a pact that we would not pick up new shows or franchises that did not feature two non-white characters featured in prominent advertised roles in the show. And so that was tough for a while, but this year we ended up watching... We continue with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. We picked up Rosewood, which was fantastic. Empire's on a decline. Blackish is still strong. Fresh Off the Boat is still strong. There's just a lot of stuff we've been watching this year. The, at the beginning good. of this year, it was almost exhausting how much TV we were watching. It almost felt like a second job with all the TV we were watching. I watched a few episodes of um, How to Get Away with Murder. Oh, I didn't mention Viola Davis, but that show continues to be just... An entire ride. Oh, it's so time. funny because it's, like, it's just jumping the shark so much that a party was just like you just kind of settle in for the ride, right? I just kind of like gave up on like looking for sense. I it's like, think there was like, a, a and they open with people like kids murdering. Yeah, <laughs> like, what the fuck? like I didn't expect this show to be about Viola Davis coaching her murder acolytes. Right, exactly. It's season. like it's like oh, gotta get away with murder. Got it. Like you didn't like literally think that's what it was going to be about. There's only one character in the show who's actually gotten away with murder, though, so... Fair enough. I uh, watched the first few episodes, and um, Anne Marshall's been, like, just having on the background constantly now. <laughs> so funny. But I was, like, I saw the her sister was into it, and then I was like, oh, there's a... I was like, oh, I was trying to take some lessons from you, being like, well, let's see how minorities are being portrayed. Because, like, I obviously have some sense of that. I'm not completely ignorant to this. But I was like, I want I wanted to really set out and see this is obviously a very, very black female protagonist she is the center of attention she's the power figure and then the young black male who's like kind of the other force that she's pulling into her world so i was kind of curious yeah, to see how they portrayed wes, it wes has been a really weird character yeah. especially in the second season i don't know if you're there yet i'm not gonna no, no. spoil it for people watching because it is its own pseudo mystery but he's in a weird character i really found that on the show, I've had a lot more enjoyment out of Michaela and Laurel consistently than Wes. He's been an up and down character. I'm not always sure what his role is, but I was thinking he doesn't seem very consistent from the little I've no, seen. I've not watched at like all. four full episodes yeah. of the first season, and then obviously been catching bits as Ann Marshall's been watching it. And like he just like he'll seem this very like innocent, wide eyed person, and all the time she's like taking charge. And you're like, well, wait a second, like you're. 
I understand he's kind of becoming that person, but sometimes I like, can't even pick out his motivations. There was a <laughs> joke that I think one of the AV Club reviewers made about Wes late in the set of the first season where she said that Wes seems to be in the central role of a character, but all I really know about him is that he likes mint chocolate chip ice cream. <laughs> from a bit of exposition we got that's about all we really know right about him other and that he was waitlisted and that was so dramatic yeah and that his mom committed suicide and that's a a, a part of his trauma yeah that sure that's gonna him. become more and more important yeah the the second the, we'll the winter finale the, the winter finale cliffhanger made some <laughs> allusions to that that were really interesting <laughs> but i'm i don't know if any of us realized that we needed Famke Jensen and Viola Davis playing longtime ex lovers, yeah. that was fun. Famke Jensen, by the way, is the actress who played Jean Grey, and we got to see a sensual scene between Famke Jensen and Viola Davis, and I didn't know we needed that in our lives, but, but hey, I was given know. life by it. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there's, there's different types of fan service, but the, uh, <laughs> the, um, so yeah, that's, yeah, it's been interesting just kind of like, you know, a lot of people say we're in a golden age of television. As I say, we're in a golden age of documentary. There's all these, just because of like the way that distribution platforms have changed, not even looking at the changes in production, which I've talked about exhaustively, the mm-hmm. DSL revolution stuff, but looking at distribution and how much like tv shows are now taken very very seriously whereas in the 90s that was where b-level actor hung out right like at best it was just something that you rarely saw a tv show that was critically acclaimed and now the standards people like i really feel like writing teams are deciding that they need to treat their audiences more intelligently and we're actually seeing uh i think was it who was talking about it i think it might have been callie Garrett, my friend ryan someone was saying this to me it might, uh, might not have been on the action on the podcast but we're actually seeing for the first time it decline in reality shows we're actually since they've started and we're actually seeing viewership drop and the number of new shows being created dropping and um i think part of that is not just the cynicism of people towards reality but i think with the rise of shows like house of cards right so all these shows that like are you know house of cards the obvious example but you have a lot of shows that are complicated characters interesting dramatic narratives you know exploring sexuality exploring more than just daddy issues right it's not like oh my god i'm in love with this person i can't be with oh my god you know i had an abusive father like these are like these tropes you see all the time in quote-unquote dramatic television and i think it's cool that we're kind of now seeing a lot more complexity i like the comment you made about like the producers and writers and the content distributors starting to treat their audiences as if they're intelligent human beings. Because that's something I commented on obliquely just over the last couple of years when we are talking about movies and how it's hard to maintain movie franchises consistently now because the audience is just bombarded with so much content on the daily basis that it's hard to maintain the memory for some of these franchises. Oh, absolutely. Like, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Oh, you're is talking so... about that, how much you have to do to, if you want to start now. How right. much catch up you have to play. The MCU <laughs> itself is just so convoluted at this. Ignoring point. the comic books, just strictly looking at the movies. Yeah, and the and television. I... It's it's so much content. But I think viewers are looking for something that they can bite into regularly. I think the desire for a consistent experience to engage with hasn't really gone away for people. No. And the desire to explore an ongoing character arc 
is still very powerful. And that, I think, has also been heavily influenced by people's ability to participate in fandom, where hyper-analysis of media is a huge thing. Like, down to... It's not just French forums anymore. It's, like, happens just on Facebook, even. It happens everywhere. Like, one of the reasons why I think Sebastian Stan and Scarlett Johansson have been given roles in the MCU is that of the actors that they have in Marvel's stable... They are really, really good at face control. They can convey a lot of different emotions with their face. I don't know if you've Carlos seen... Carlos is a very good physical actress. I don't know if you've seen the movie she made with... Oh, uh, uh, Under the Skin? JGL and... Oh, my God. I can't is that Under the Skin? Is that no, one? I'm thinking about... That's the alien one. Oh, my God. What's the name of that bro movie that Joseph Gordon-Levitt made? Oh, um, uh, Don John. No, Don... Is that Don John? Don John. Yeah. So... And she was fantastic in that, as was... Oh my god, I'm going to be so mad that I can't remember her name. I'm going to look it up while we're talking. Do it. But... But you're saying, like, her role was just really... She, like, I just really liked the way... I'll pull it up for you. You can go ahead and keep talking. I really liked the way that she really just displays so much emotion in that. And I really liked the way we were able to constantly flip from being on her side to not on her side to back Mm -hmm. on her side to not on her side because of the way she was carrying herself throughout that film and she just displays so much thought and emotion and reaction in her face mm-hmm. and that's not really something you get that often Julianne in, Moore oh my god Julianne Moore so like for this film in particular oh, like, there's I, a lot of women so. <laughs> I really I really hated what happens to Julianne Moore and a lot of her roles she gets now because she's fantastic but she always plays like the like traumatic mom in mm-hmm. so many ways like her role in Carrie is kind of the role that she's been in for a while mm-hmm. and I'm not a really big fan of her in that role because I think she's just she's got so much depth as an actor that I really like when she gets to do something more complicated like she in this film was playing a woman who had lost her son and husband in a traumatic car accident and was trying to put her life back together by going back to school but was also smoking weed and hanging out with this kid because she's kind of lost in her life right now. And that was just such a complicated character for her that she mm-hmm. hadn't I hadn't really got to see out of her in a while. And that was what was so fun for me. And then you look at the production side of stuff around that. Like Scarlett Johansson in all these Marvel interviews all the time is always getting asked inappropriate questions about her diet or her body mm-hmm. and not about the craft of acting that goes into and a lot of people portraying... off her character especially yeah. the fact that she had a romance kind of going with um uh bruce banner like or whatever they kind of like implied relationship thing oh, and i was Lord. like green as much as i didn't like that <laughs> as much as i didn't um <laughs> that's their that's apparently their ship name and i'm not a fan of it i'm not a fan What's of it called jo- again? green widow i'm not a fan yes. of joss whedon anymore i'm not a fan of what he did with the with a lot of Avengers 2. And I'm especially not a fan of the Bruce Banner, Scarlett Johansson, sure, Black Widow Sure, but then people thing. use that as a crutch. Because I think a lot of people wanted to write off Scarlett Johansson because she is a powerful sex symbol. She is a, like, beautiful, attractive woman who's, like, obviously sexualizing like, everything she's in. Did you and know she actually got... to write off her did character. She, did you know opinion. she got breast reduction surgery years ago because that was a thing in her career? Hmm. I didn't know that. Because she's actually a very good actress in the front. Like, that's, the fact that I have to say she's actually a very good, That's the whole point, right? <laughs> have and I you, think that people wanted to find you should, a reason to tear her down. What you should do... her be a good black widow. You should look at some of the interviews <laughs> that were done with her and Joseph Gordon-Levitt 
when they were Don advertising Don John. At one point, he gets asked a question about why he cast her. And he goes on this like three to five minute just gush about her skill as an actress. And you just see Scarlett glowing next to him. And she's just like, ask him more questions. I like this. Let's keep doing this. Like, like, it's so bad that some of her Marvel co-stars have said that if they are in an interview with her and someone asks her an inappropriate question, they're taking the question and answering it for themselves as if they were asked for it. Right. That's how obnoxious it's gotten. And it's just, it's just unfortunate because they want to make her that trope. Yeah. Like, instead of letting her be, like I was just saying, the phenom- you know, she is a very good actress. And, like, instead of just letting her be a good actress, they're like, oh, well, she's obviously in it because it's Scarlett Johansson. You know, it's like there's kind of this mentality that people want to pigeonhole her. <laughs> and that's like, why I was really like I, I haven't the casting directors do I don't I actually don't think I mean she is obviously like they're like oh hell yeah Scarlett Johansson people will come see her but I don't think they're sitting there going like oh we need her as a sex symbol they go like oh she's actually a really good actress <laughs> I've only watched some excerpts from her I haven't been able to sit down and watch do you need it water yet. by the way I'm sorry I should have offered before we started yes we okay I'm gonna grab water. me a water real quick let me pause this for one second sorry about that man no, I just fine. it just occurred to me I was like you got nothing on you all right, and we are back in. <laughs> in the little bits of her that I've seen, I really like that they took they put her in a role where you're not looking at her face or her body the whole time. It's just her voice control that comes into play here, and you end up feeling so many things about her just on the development of this AI that he's interacting with and the fact that it's her voice. And that is just really fascinating to me overall. She's just such a talented actress. Yeah. And I feel that oftentimes she gets underutilized in some of the roles she's in, which is why I really think like every dude should go see Don John because it's a movie that looks like it's targeted at bros, but ends up being very subvert- subversive of the entire concept of the bro lifestyle. Yeah. Without making judgments against it as an inherently negative thing, it explores it and is like, well, here's a better path for you. Yeah. Your life can be kind of empty. And that's really, really cool with that particular film. But yeah, in terms of television and movies this year, my favorite new show right now would have to be Rosewood. Mm-hmm. I did not expect to get a show like Rosewood, but we get Morris Chestnut being beautiful and charming as a private pathologist on television with his lesbian sister and her fiance working in his office also as professionals with Lorraine Toussaint playing their mother who's now hanging out in their office helping them manage things. Mm. And then you've got Annalie Ortiz as his the detective he works with the most and she's just fantastic as tough as nails I can't remember the name of the guy who's the captain but he was the one of the detectives on the wire mm-hmm. he shows up as a cop in a lot of things mm-hmm. it's just so enjoyable to watch these people interact like I don't normally go for procedurals they're not normally my thing mm-hmm. but when I do end up watching one it always inevitably ends up being a fox one because a fox one is more about the characters in play than the crime of the week which is why even though like elementary Sherlock is like the better version of Sherlock, who's less of an asshole and has more nuance, it's just such a boring show for me to watch because the mm. CBS crime procedural is just so tedious to watch. 
But when I watch Rosewood, I don't really care about the case of the week. I'm just here to watch everybody talk to each other for 45 minutes because they're just like, so charming. Mass Effect, and you spend an hour walking around the ship having dialogues. Yeah, basically. <laughs> that was so funny. If, if you don't mind me switching gears, that was no, just funny. I remember we were talking about when I was talking about picking up Dragon Age Inquisition. You're like, well, you need to understand it's. It's like if you really like talking to people, there's a lot of that. And I was just like, yes. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts about <clears throat> Dragon Age. I know. Well, you can miss me, And it was uh, 20 bucks. And like, oh my God, I'm not going to say how much time I've sucked into it. And Marshall, I'm sorry. <laughs> I can tell you. I saw how much you've been playing. Dude, well, because <laughs> it does that weird thing that like I was telling you where if you'll turn off the Xbox without quitting you know and then get on the next day it'll say i've been on for like 14 hours so like it says like <laughs> 300 hours or something on this playthrough and i'm like there's there's literally no way i could have done that but i guarantee you that it is a significant fraction of that <laughs> dragon age is really fascinating and it was I, I think what's really weird about Bioware... I'm surprised is, it's the same company in some ways as Mass Effect. Because I guess Mass Effect is... I get a better perspective of Mass Effect now because of... I guess Mass Effect's meant to be, obviously, a broader appeal. So, I guess I'll talk about Bioware again. I don't know if I talked about Bioware last time. I talked about Bioware We now. talked a bit about them. Bioware was founded by two doctors <clears> who <throat> had two great big loves growing up. Star Wars and Dungeons and & Dragons. And they wanted to really explore what they could do with that... In video games. So we got Knights of the Old Republic, which is arguably one of the best Star Wars games ever That's made. And so it spawned the entire Old Republic world. era of the, <laughs> the former expanded universe. I know there are Star Wars fans out there who are bitter about that, but it needed to go. Whether Disney makes something good <laughs> out of new Star Wars or not. The expanded universe was too big they and too contradictory. Everyone's gonna be mad at them for exactly. not addressing certain things. Exactly, it's just like, oh, it was... that person didn't live. This person lived. Another person goes, well, this person lived and this person died. And, and that's the thing, because it's like, well, what about what happened in like Attack on Corellia? Here's the man. Here's the thing, dude. No one cares about Attack on Corellia. No one cares at all. No one cares about Kevin Anderson's Jedi Academy stuff. And no one wants to relive Jason Solo going to the dark side or Anakin Solo dying or Chewbacca dying. No yeah. one wants that. You want people back in the Star Wars Disney knows you just cut ties with all of the convoluted lore. They did with Star Trek. They did. Oh well, it's an alternate universe. Yeah, now. like whether you terrible. like it or not. And that sure, was terrible. Sure, but it was also like they did have several different Star Trek franchises to navigate. Exactly. So at least I understood the impulse for them to wave their hand and say, "Now we can do what we want." And I understood that. Because the other and, Star Trek series didn't build on each other. And that was never my frustration with those films. It's like, just how they did as, Star, <laughs> as a Star Trek fan, they're like, they just use time travel shenanigans to create a new timeline. Why not? Who cares? It's the future. It's still Star Trek. <laughs> it's still a Star Trek franchise. And if they want a clean slate to work with, I respect that. You but do. the problem for me is that Star Trek fundamentally is about a group of professionals from a diverse background all coming together towards a common goal to do work that they enjoy together. Right. If you like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, that's kind of what was in Star Trek. It wasn't as much of a comedy at all. Right. But Brooklyn Nine-Nine is a diverse cast of people committed to running a police precinct together right. as a detective squad. And everybody loves Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Parks and Rec and single camera comedies like that because that's what they are. Right. It's a group of people who are very different from each other working together for something that they like to do together. That's right. at the core of what Star Trek was. And New Trek is not about that at all. Yeah. It's just 
people yelling at each other and then angst man so much angst so I guess sorry for getting us off track. I, I, sh- I should have known it happens. It happens. it happens, but Bioware. Yeah, so Bioware on their two big loves are Star Wars and Dungeons and Dragons. So they wanted to bring both of those to video games. And so you get Knights of the Old Republic, and then that got up bought out Amazing. by Obsidian, and they made Knights of the Old Republic 2, which wasn't necessarily bad, just buggy and unfinished. And then they also yeah. made Although the greatest villain. Yeah. Like, not Nihilus, just Kreia. Kreia, yeah. One of the Kreia. most beautiful characters I've ever seen in Star Wars. I think Kreia is my favorite Star Wars foil. Yeah. Because she's one of the few characters within Star Wars to ever question the internal logic of Star Wars. Right. And I think... That kind really, of like Jolie Bendo started that in the first Yeah, one. and... And then the second one she goes in. And I feel like that's another reason why Bioware broke away from Star Wars and made Mass Effect. And why I have a lot of problems with all these franchises being rebuilt is, just a quick aside, my currently favorite fantasy author is Brandon Sanderson. Mm -hmm. I really like his formulaic writing style. Some people say that that makes him less enjoyable to read. But for me, it means that the words aren't important. It's about the ideas and play and what's going on. So he's got a very large world he's creating. He's got all these separate fantasy projects that are inherently linked in some sort of dwarf galaxy that we refer to as the Cosmere. So all of these books happening on different worlds are intrinsically linked, and it's all very tightly woven together. There is a fundamental logic to all of this driving things forward. So everything feels like it stems naturally. Things aren't existing to serve someone's idea of what things should be. Or mm-hmm. whatnot, and it's so much more enjoyable. And Star Wars, I feel like, has been constantly retconned by its own fan base to make more sense. Yeah, and that's not a, a knock on Star Wars because it's a, it's a product of its time, right? And it's a it's like, 40 like a, years ago. I mean, it's a it's a recelebration of the ancient epic in those kinds of storytellings. But that's fine. But I also feel like it's holding us back now that everything that we're worried about. Is about maintaining franchises that are just familiar. Yeah. One of my frustrations with the current Star Wars film is that I was reading a report already that Star Wars has already grossed over a billion dollars in licensing deals to advertise and toys. That's a billion dollars on a film that does not exist yet. <laughs> this film is on pace to make two billion dollars and it doesn't exist yet. Like, well, I mean, it exists. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't. I you, I'm, but, being, I'm being pedantic. But <laughs> Sorry. I, you got to think about this as a moviegoer. Yeah. As a moviegoer, a film that we have full reason to believe will be bad. <laughs> Star Wars. Just based on pre previous experience. Star Wars has only made two out of six good films. I know that's going to piss off people who like the original trilogy, but Return of the Jedi is not a good film. <laughs> I'll explain that. I'll explain. Well, no, we'll get back to we'll get we'll get back to Star Wars after we get through the Bioware stuff. But just in terms of something I want to really cover while we're talking about this is that I'm a residential redeveloper. I take broken houses and I fix broken houses. We should actually do a podcast about some points. I think that would be really interesting. We never talk about your work. And what we do in that is we rely on financing to fix these houses, and the people who finance us a lot of times banks need to know that they're going to get their money back. 
and that's how the movie industry works. They don't give a shit about making good films that make people happy. They're like, if we invest $300 million into this franchise and put another $200 million into advertising, how much of a return on that can we predict reasonably within the first year or two of it being made? And what's the long-term profitability of that franchise? That's not an artistic conversation at all. Star Wars as a brand will make Disney over $3 billion. Yeah, easily. Within the year's worth of advertising going into it. Like the film is set to make $500 million in its opening weekend. And that's just domestic. Yeah. This means that Star Wars does not have to be good. I want you all to understand that when we're talking about this. It's not about whether or not Star Wars is good or will be good. Even after it's the about one and two people still stop seven three. Exactly. People it's about go see Star Wars. the brand power that Star Wars holds and how it's so familiar and so much an American stable that we almost shame people into watching Star Wars if they haven't watched it before. Yeah. That Star Wars will be profitable just because it's Star Wars. Right. And I say this as a Star Trek fan. Star Trek has made seven terrible films. <laughs> Since Undiscovered Country, we went through Generations, Insurrection, First Contact, Nemesis, Star Trek 2009, and Into Darkness now. So six films. Six terrible films (laughs) over the course of almost 20 years, and Star Trek is still making money. That's the power of a brand, and that means that a, a development house doesn't have to care if they do a great job with something. They just have to do an okay job. As long as it's decent enough that people will argue for it, it's going to be powerful enough to make a shitload of money. Fan service to keep people happy. Yeah, that's the other part. It doesn't even need to be good. Well, it's just funny. I was actually talking a little, a little side tangent here, um, because I, I've only like we didn't quite finish. We got to like the like second to last or last mission of Halo Five. Mike and I just sat down, basically blew through it in one evening. It's terrible. And well, you know, it's it's not, it's the I hate doing this because it's such an easy chip to say. Because I will preface this. Call of Duty Modern Warfare 1 and 2 were actually incredibly innovative games. When those two games came out, no no one had messed with the Call of Duty franchise, and that was a very big leap for them mm-hmm. from World War II, and I think that especially the first Modern Warfare was a very brilliant game. That was very well done, and it obviously had an impact because look at all the clones and imitations since, right? It's a system right. that works. They... And a lot of games have started borrowing concepts from him. And I thought that kind of worked in 4. I thought the loadout system wasn't a terrible idea. Not that Modern Warfare invented it. But loadout kind of worked. I saw how it did and didn't. And there's some ideas and I thought it was cool to mess with it. Halo 5 campaign was a little too quote-unquote epic at times. Even for even for Halo. Like you had these gigantic... And you'd watch these cinematics where your characters were doing these extreme maneuvers that you, the player, couldn't do. And say what you want about Halo. Up till that point, I'd never watched the Master Chief do something I couldn't do in gameplay. That's and, a good and point. And that kind of drove me crazy. Like, they would point, like, jump in the air, slam the ground, and take out six guys. And I'm like, well, when I do that move, I don't even kill the Elite. Like, what the hell? Because <laughs> I saw yeah. them do that, and the first thing I the, did was try the, to like, slam the ground. Like, the opening cinematic is it was literally, it was literally a Spartan. And it was fun as hell. A Spartan charging through a rock. Right. Like, I need to go this direction. This rock is in my way. I don't care. Which, <laughs> as, a, as a, like, Halo's one of the only expanding universes I keep up with, despite its problems. Yeah. I still love it. It's a guilty pleasure. And, like, that, those those cinematics are very fun for me. Like, they're so insane and over the top that I'm like, screw it. I want to watch it. You were talking about... But it loses the story in the process. It started ruining my gameplay. You were talking <laughs> about fan service, and I feel like a lot of Halo, Halo 5 campaign... Halo 5 hardcore fan service. It's, the, it's got the same 
shitty structure of Halo 2, where you've got two different groups kind of working at at odds-ish and then kind of coming together late in it, and then it just sort of ends abruptly. That's the exact same dynamic of Halo 2, and that wasn't a good dynamic. Yeah. Like... Don't get me wrong, I am a leader of a Halo clan, and we are playing a lot of Warzone, and I'm really having a lot of fun with Halo again. Right. But I've never been a huge fan of the Halo campaigns, and this has done nothing to change my opinion of Halo's terrible well, campaigns. Halo 1 just had this magical, I know it's easy to go back into the, but like Halo 1 had this really like discovery mystery aspect that was well executed, especially for the time, because you're like kind of in this foreign place, and it's... It's you're not sure what it is like the ruins of this old group and it, it was kind of it was a creative I, atmosphere. And I agree with you and I think the only way Halo gets back to go. that is by letting go of the franchise model. Right. One of the things that was kind of fun for Reach was that it was separate from the Master Chief altogether. Right. So say what you will Same about with the camp- Say what you will about the campaign's whole who's going to get the most glorious death thing. Which I was totally fine with. But <laughs> I was totally fine with that. <laughs> It was still at least fascinating in that it felt new. It was something different to explore. Yeah, especially when people read the book. Yeah, and I it's just so tedious to me playing Halo campaigns these days. Or even talking about Halo's lore. Because Bungie, Bungie gets on my nerves with the way they think they invented everything new in science fiction. <laughs> but they're like, nobody's ever done a, a world thing like the Halo. I think there's literally a book called Ringworld, guys. Come on. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so so now for the fourth time back yeah. to bioware back to bioware who knows how and to I tell totally, stories i will totally uh, take uh the responsibility back for to bioware who knows how to tell stories so i think it's important we all know all these games and things are in concert with each other there's definitely a dialogue between them i think it's important that's very to recognize true. that as so, much as we're digressing so sorry bioware is really big on star wars and bioware then made mass effect which many of you are familiar with I guess at some point I should do my whole spiel on why the Mass Effect re-ending isn't bad. But Mass Effect was their space game that got them away from Star Wars and allowed them to explore something different. But Dragon Age, to me, in a lot of ways, was their desire to really tackle D&D without being bogged down in D&D's own lore. Because D&D is huge. Yeah. And... And there are D and D games out there, you yeah. know, like Neverwinter. What's well, the uh, isn't Baldur's Gate? Uh, yeah, D&D? yeah, it actually is. I think it's attached to it, as far as I know. But Dragon Age to me starts with the fundamental concept of when you're playing Knights of the Old Republic. At some point, I think. Oh my god, I can't remember the name of the Mandalorian right now. Oh, uh, well, it's not Mandalore. This is what he becomes, but he is. Um, oh, 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 is an O or oh, oh, um. It's going to come to us. It starts with an O. But the point is, Uh. he asks the question of, why do normal people put up with Jedi? Because, I mean, the Jedi are cool peeps and all. There's like a couple hundred, a couple thousand of them roaming around. Just generally everyday nice force users. And then two Sith come along and ruin everything. Yeah. Why would normal people put up with this? Right. At all. If you live in a world where two people with supernatural abilities can suddenly just ruin everything for everyone right why would normal people put up with that and that's where dragon age comes from the answer was they didn't after (laughs) the deventer imperium grew up around magic users decided candris ordo there you go 
Anyway, yeah, so Candace asked Candace asked question. that question, and I think that's where Dragon Age came from. They go, normal people wouldn't put up with this. They rebelled against the... They rebelled against the... Tevinter Imperium, overthrew them, and then locked mages away. They're like, look, homie, no one's saying that you're born evil, but if you go... If you go off the deep end... If tomorrow you decided to... Right. Or if you get scared, or you're not strong enough to resist possession, you could hurt so many people. Right. And that has nothing to do with whether or not we think you're bad or magic is bad. It's... We have to deal with this this yeah. way. Without getting too into it, just for those of you who've never played, basically the game is like it's like a medieval-ish type setting with magic and stuff. But the long story short is that it's a society... The place you're usually playing in is where... People are born with magic abilities. Lots of people are born with it. Not everyone can do it, just lots of people are born with it. And society has decided that they are scared of it and they're afraid of what these people can do because there have been incidents of things happening. So it's kind of like with X-Men where people start to get afraid of these people having special powers and this fear that like, oh, what if they just decided one day to kill us all? It's, it's so, in a lot of the backdrop, you're watching this dynamic unfold of like a persecution against a minority who actually has like they do have the ability to massacre thousands of people. They really do. <laughs> and well, but here's it's a the fear thing, thing. Like, it's about fear and ignorance. It's a very two, interesting theme throughout it. There's all. two fascinating things about this. For the people in Thetis, that's what they call their continent, which is funny because it's called Thetis because when they were working on the game, they just called it the Dragon Age setting for a long time. Uh, and so they were like, it screw it, Thetis. <laughs> <laughs> um That's great, I didn't know that. Magic users have legit caused a problem. They accidentally created zombies. Magic users tried to enter into like the dream world where all the magic comes from and accidentally created the blight that turns people into zombies, hell-bent on bringing back sleeping ancient dragons that then roam around the continent, fucking up everything. Right. This is a legit... So it's thing. not like this is purely out of speculation. <laughs> they have done... There have been terrible things. Right. But then it's about do you... It's honestly very relevant to what we're going through right now with ISIS and Syrians, right? It's like, do you, out of fear, some legitimate start barring entire exactly. populations? Exactly. There's, like, it's a very so, legitimate conversation there's there. There's so much fascinating stuff in Dragon. We're only going to touch on a little bit in here. Sure, right? but the I whole entire point is that, That's what I think is fun age. about it, though, is that it's like... that The fun of that game is that there's so many amazing discussions happening, and having never played Dragon Age and having started with Mass Effect which has a lot of good stuff mm -hmm. I thought Mass Effect as far as customizing how your story went was expertly done I love Mass Effect I don't care what anyone says I, I had a great time I spent 120 hours having my own interactions with despite the problems of the game so, but Dra the Dragon Age yeah. this dialogue was just the, the nuance and the characters you played and the, the way you built your world was so fascinating it was so nuanced so here's what me was fascinating about Dragon Age there have been three main Dragon Age games and one extra game we're not going to talk about too much of awakening those of you are dragon age fans it's just a dragon age origins extension so you have origins which has a, a primary character whose job is pretty traditional the country i live in is about to get screwed by the blight zombies are coming to ruin everything i have the potential to stop it if i unite everybody and that's the bioware formula assemble a team unite everyone Misfits, fight big evil yeah. fight big evil deal with racial racial and national so, nationalism clashes and then Stop the bad guy through teamwork. Right. And so that was that was Dragon Age Origins. Very traditional. But then Dragon Age 2 comes along. And Dragon Age 2 has a lot of problems in being very repetitive. But what for me is fascinating about Dragon Age 2 is you don't unite people to fight big evil. You assemble a team to go get money so your family doesn't die. 
and then you're trying to avoid conflict and get roped into an invasion of the city you live in. And then you're also trying to avoid conflict and you get wrapped into a civil war between mages and Templars. All of Dragon Age 2 is you trying to unsuccessfully protect your family. You're not trying to take over things and unite people to fight big evil. You are literally just trying to survive. And I thought you're dealing with the fact that this yeah, is and that was for me was really fascinating. It's like as powerful as your character becomes, you're very powerless from a meta perspective. Right, you, like you don't can't change have... the course of events really. Exactly, Until the end, obviously. And right? that, but that for me was like was super fascinating because like what's interesting is like no matter what happens in Dragon Age Two, whether you side with the mages or side with the Templars, the Mage Templar War is going to happen regardless. Right. Right. And that, for me, is really fascinating about Dragon Age 2. And I feel like that's a much more interesting conversation than Despite I really got tired of, of being... Yeah. I got tired of running around Kirkwall all game. And I'm like, but that, for me, was actually really fundamentally fascinating, was we don't get to roam everywhere. We're not this mega force or the leader of a mega force. But that's kind of what we got back to in Inquisition. And Inquisition is also fascinating because it is a post-Skyrim fantasy game. Right. That's what I refer to The Witcher and Dragon Age Inquisition as. They are post-Skyrim games. Skyrim opened up fantasy in a way that we had not expected to happen. Yeah, fantasy was... had been very niche, but then suddenly everyone had an opinion on fantasy games because they played Skyrim. And while I'm not a fan of Skyrim because I don't want to go into an open world and just kind of fuck off for a while, I respect that Skyrim's effect is something that you feel yeah. in Inquisition, where you can spend a lot of time roaming around doing things. It was also fascinating for me in Inquisition is that in my first playthrough, I felt the story pressure to continue, so I prioritized what I felt I want want to do from my character's perspective, because we couldn't solve every <coughs> problem in the game. I mean, yeah. if you met a game, yes, you can solve every problem. But in my first playthrough, I didn't. I prioritized what I thought was important, and then I plowed through the plot. Whenever I got bored roaming well, around the cycle, overwhelming I mean, the first time they were trying to figure out the mechanics. <laughs> the game was really overwhelming in the beginning. Just yeah. as far as like... There's all these shops in this area. I don't know what half these things are. I was like going to, I'd like discover a new land to get there and I was too weak to kill anything. Mm-hmm. Like it was hard to figure out when am I breaking too far from the patch to the point. And that's was, that was really fascinating. So like the Hinterlands. So my second playthrough, I had a lot better feel. The Hinterlands itself is you gotta cut your teeth until like level 11 there until you get before you go anywhere else. But you don't necessarily have to. Like, you just avoid certain areas of the hinterlands or you go off. So there's a whole thing. Dragon Age Inquisition is really fascinating in terms of how they structured a lot of things. But in that one, we also start to see things like out of the companion. So for those of you who haven't played Bioware games before, their big three C's are choices, companions, and conversations. Yeah. So you make over 800 choices in a Bioware game, typically. Small and large. And then you have all of these companions who are with you. And, in, and they judge everything. And in do. Inquisition, <laughs> I really think we start to see a lot of interesting like commentary on the fans themselves in the in the companions we get. Right. Vivian is very proud and is very assertive about how she feels about things. And Dorian is very sassy and dismissive of other things that don't fit his perspective on things. And I feel like that's part of the fans. Or Cole. Cole is a spirit... That has taken on human form, and we don't need to get into the details of that. But Cole has the ability to erase people's memories if he's trying to help them, because he's compassionate. That's like his core character trait. But if it doesn't go well, he erases their memory and starts over. Yeah, he does it again. How is that any different than a player reloading a game? Yep. 
to make the situation go better for them. Yeah. Saving before you have a sense that something important is about to happen, you save game and how is that any different? Yeah, I and so about that. the game the asks you at some point, do you want to help Cole become more human and deal with the consequences of his actions? Or do you want to let him remain more like a spirit so he can keep sticking to his nature and continue to do what he's been doing? And that for me is like it's like I typically make Cole more human and I think about that a lot. When you're playing the game, how often do you just live with the choices that you make? Right. How often do you go back and replay things because you don't like the way turn things turned out? What does that say about you as a player? That you're in, you're using that ability. Yeah. Like if you imagine that your character has that kind of ability, what does that say? And that for me is really fascinating. I think Blackwall is another one who's kind of boring overall, but how is he any different from players who are like, we we can be better. We just have to believe we can be better. But he's kind of an ass at the end of things because he's just hiding from yeah. his own like bullshit. Well, you know what's funny? This reminds me of Matt, if you're listening. This is my buddy Matt Wurz. He moved out of Seattle. It just made me think of some reason with all of your choice making. Mm-hmm. And he did a playthrough of Mass Effect. I think he called him um, Failure Shepherd, where he literally middle the road did everything he could and was never making a positive or negative choice, was being as unassertive as possible. So he made his whole character basically, like, really uncertain all the time and would, like, contradict himself, like, keep changing his mind every day. Mm-hmm. So you're basically getting, like, anyone who would accidentally get killed because of an ag would see get killed. Like, it was this horrible playthrough. Yeah, there was Where some... he basically bumbles along until he saves the day. <laughs> That's that's for me. That's really fascinating because like, would you question why they have him in charge? <laughs> and that's for me like super fascinating because like here's the thing, for people who played Mass Effect three, and now that we're a couple of years past the game, people are going to feel less strong about this. I think fundamentally the ending of Mass Effect three is really really poetic and very very brave of Bioware and especially EA because here's the thing, you make. Let's just throw ballpark. Like, if you say like five hundred choices a game, I was like, you, you make, literally make, you make at least you make games. at least fifteen hundred choices over the course of a Mass Effect playthrough. And it's every single. It's one of the first games where you literally pick up your character from the previous game, it, and all your choices carry over. And Bioware turned around at the end of Mass Effect Three and goes, "Why? You played." three games you put over a hundred hours into getting here why and what's the, the world very, you're leaving your way at the very end of the game they asked you to summarize what the thrust of all of your choices meant and we can get into the indoctrination theory and i don't buy it and how all that stuff it's a good theory but i don't think that's what they went for I don't think it's what they went for. They would have ultimately told you. They would have done that and not told you. Actually. I, I think it's a fun denial in theory. It's like the but... big, like Darth Bings. <laughs> I'm just not gonna acknowledge that on the on the podcast at all. <laughs> so at the end of Mass Effect Three, we they ask you fundamentally what your why is, and I think that's very powerful. In a lot of ways. That's an interesting question. And so, are you doing this so you can become the eternal god of the universe? Do you believe in this synergy nonsense? Or do you reject the notion of the Reapers altogether 
and what they think they exist for and just blow them out of the water and go, we can do better. Like, I don't buy the whole bullshit about them destroying the Geth 2 in the process. I ain't worried about that. <laughs> but... <laughs> Tough break, guys. <laughs> I just didn't believe them. I didn't care. I mm. usually take the destroy ending. Yeah. Uh, I was an indoctrination theorist for a while. I, the only thing but... I didn't like about the synthetic ending was just like, I just felt like that's not your guy's... He's not allowed to make that decision. Mm-mm. You're not allowed to make that decision for the world. That's not fair. Yeah. As much as they trusted you to defend them, they didn't trust you to change the genetic makeup of everybody. But that's for me what resonates <laughs> with me at the end of Mass Effect 3 is... And here's the other thing. People were like, well, in the lore this or the lore that. But science fiction has done this a lot of times where at the end of a, a franchise or a, a movie or book or whatever you'll encounter something so technologically advanced that it feels like magic. Right. Which is what we say all the time is sufficiently advanced tech looks yeah, like magic. Exactly. I mean, we talk in plastic cases with glass on the front. Yeah. And communicate with people around the world. You can put people in space. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not out of the way from science fiction to do that. And I, I really think that was brave of BioWare to make a thematic statement. At the end of their game. Well, no of... ending they could... I really think they could have made an ending that made people happy. There was exactly. no way. And I do... I, I and I... Know, yeah, I'll let you finish your thought now. But I see that at the end the of Dragon thing. Age Inquisition. So, like... I love Bioware games. But here's the thing. We were talking about, like, TV shows having a... Our regular bit of content for you to chew on. We won't get another Dragon Age game for... Two, possibly three years? Yeah. Right now. Dragon Age Inquisition came out in 2014 and was Game of the Year. Good for them. That was a great game. But we won't return to Thetis until 2016 at the earliest. And likely, they're currently working on Mass Effect Andromeda, so that's going to eat up time. Likely 2017. Like, Mark Dara, who's in charge of the, bio, the Dragon Age team, is like... We haven't even really started working on that yet. I mean, he could be lying to us. Yeah. But I would lie to us if I was by where I would lie to us because then everyone's gonna go, "Where is it? Where is it?" <laughs> but that's really fascinating. Uh, is they've structured Dragon Age in such a way that it's it's starting to delve into the comics things that I hate. Like Dragon Age feels like for me that it will always feel unsatisfying because the world will always feel like it could go on and there could be more things and new things to do. And then Dragon Age is so huge that we could go literally anywhere. Like we haven't been to Navarra or all these other worlds and the end of the last dlc implies that we're going to the Taventer imperium next which is great because they've been a huge talking point for three games now but dragon age feels like for me it will never reach a satisfying end and i feel like mass effect at the very least gave us closure yeah and i don't they think, did wrap the game up which and is i don't difficult. think dragon age will ever give that to us but speaking of regular content to interact with one of the most fascinating games i've played in the last year was life is strange yeah. Published by Square Enix, developed by Don't Not Entertainment. This is a game that, for me, was fascinating because the fundamental mechanic of the game and the girl's ability to rewind time in small bits was part of the game's narrative. <clears throat> right. The only other game I've played in recent memory that used its own mechanic as part of its storytelling was Brothers A Tale of Two Sons. Right. I've talked about that game a lot where you are using your left stick and your your left and right sticks and the left and right triggers to control two characters who are brothers 
who are trying to journey across the land to find a cure for their very sick father. And they don't get along right away at first, and you don't get along with them because you're struggling to control both of them to make them work in sync to solve puzzles. But by the end of the game, you're working well together, and something tragic happens, and then suddenly, within the mechanic, you are also experiencing the trauma of what's going on. And that was just so powerful. Like, if you... If you have a little disposable income and you're on any console now because they did release it for the newer consoles, I highly recommend playing Brothers of Tale of Two Sons. Like if AAA action games are akin to AAA movies, Brothers of Tale of Two Sons is akin to a poem. Right. And it's an experience that I think is very much worth Short having. But life is kind of fun. But Life uh, is Strange was an episodic game yeah. where every couple of months I was where looking I'm very to mixed see... About, I'm very mixed about the episodic structure. I just end up waiting for all the five episodes to come out and then I buy the game. I'm just... I think that's totally fair. I think that's a fair way to engage with that kind of content. Yeah. And I understand the mind behind it, but... I... Here's the thing for me. So, we've got indie content, which <clears throat> is a couple of people working together to develop a very small-scale game. And then you've got... AAA titles, which cost hundreds of millions of dollars and have huge teams on. And then you've got these sort of arcade titles that are somewhere in between. I think episodic content is the next evolution of the arcade style. So, and it's the other way to tell different kinds of stories. So, like, Life is Strange is not about, like, your ability to twitch your sticks back and forth and shoot someone in the head. You're interacting with people and going through a narrative and trying to solve a mystery. And so... I'm not a huge fan of the way Telltale does things. And it's not a knock on Telltale for those of you who really enjoy Walking Dead. Yeah, I mean, they're well stuff. done. They are doing too many projects at once. They are doing too many. But they, you you listen to them and they talk about the financial side of it is they have just enough money to get an episode out. And then that episode pays for the next episode. Right. And in terms of monetizing content for a smaller development team, I feel like that's a really great model to follow. Sure. And I think it enables us to tell the kinds of stories that I think are more interesting. Because here's the thing for me. Square is not a small team. <laughs> no, but Don't Not is a smaller team. True. Don't Not is a smaller... But Square's backing you. Like, I just don't... I, I think it's also... A, it's a bigger arm of the Milestone system, which has already caused problems in gaming in the past for different development teams. The I Milestone think... system's got a lot of drawbacks. And it has things that work. It makes sense. It's about hedging your bets. Here's the thing but for me, But it's like you though. don't start building a car. You don't build the chassis. Here's and then the, here's the, the tires and then you get the though. money to add an engine. And then you <laughs> In terms of Square, I really liked the new Tomb Raider game. Sorry. Quick time events, but it's very fun. Sorry, not the, the new one that just came out. I haven't played Rise yet. Yeah. It's just been busy. But the first one's really fun. I, like I really liked the new Tomb Raider, and I really liked Sleeping Dogs. I think if you thought Watch Dogs was going to be something amazing and fun, and you were just as disappointed as I was, go play Sleeping Dogs. It's a much better game. But I don't ever feel like I should pay $60 for Square's games. Yeah, I feel like I should pay $40 for their games. Which is crazy, because games should cost $100 now, in terms of keeping up with inflation and the kinds of numbers that are going out there. But I like a lot of the games Square makes, but I don't want to pay full price for them. Yeah. And I think episodic content is a great way for them to do that going forward. Interesting point. And for me, in terms of like interacting with your friends and stuff, I feel like episodic games fit into the water cooler conversation a lot better than large scale releases. Like you played Dragon Age almost a year after I 
beat it in right. a week, which was not healthy for you, by the way. There's 168 hours in a week, and I somehow put like 110 in the Dragon Age and worked like 40 hours that week. It's just not healthy. <laughs> not healthy at all. Just power napping your way to victory is not good. But how do you have a conversation with someone about a game that takes hundred at least a hundred hours to fully complete right. how do you have a conversation with them in real time about what you're interacting with right life is strange as episodes take anywhere from three to six hours to get through depending on how much you want to nitpick agonize about I, I agonize over this and so that's fine but like over the course of a weekend it's like hey man new life is strange episode is out and played over the weekend chat about it on monday blah 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 blah, blah. right and you can sit there and you can be like, oh, man. Skyrim's out. You can play like, 40 hours. Talk about like, oh, man, dude. Like, you can just be like, oh, man, did you play that episode? Oh, my God, did you see what happened to that character in this episode? Well, oh, like God. a TV show, exactly. Right, like right. a TV show. And that's why I think TV is back the way it is, is with the way we wait forever for franchises to come up. And now that we have time-delayed television, people can more cohesively get together with their group of people and be like, so on Saturday, you guys want to get together and catch up on the TV for the week? We watch like three shows together. So we'll hang out on a Saturday, watch the three shows we care about, and then chat it up. Like some friends of mine and I get together for Game of Thrones, even though Game of Thrones gets on my nerves. Yeah. But that's part of our nerd interaction. But we don't have to watch Game of Thrones live all the time. Right. So like if somebody's busy on a Sunday or just not feeling well, you would be like, hey, it's been a shitty week. Let's watch it on Monday. And we'll be right. like, all right, cool. And we get together and we do our nerd thing. But that's what people are buying into now is the it it allows you to get together with your people because for me at the end of everything it's about people. Yeah. How does media bring people together? Yeah. And I think episodic content has a great place to fill there. Yeah. Like with Telltale, I'm not a fan of the way Telltale does their stuff because I like their mechanic where you have to make the decision quickly. But I don't feel like that allows me to role play because if I'm making a split second decision on what someone should say. I'm making the decision. I'm not making the character that this woman or this man was going to make. Yeah. I'm making Although the decision. Although you can technically pause make. if you really want to, but it does kind of ruin immersion. Right. Although I will say, I think they're. it's a shame they haven't done more with it. And I'm, I'm guessing it's honestly, it's probably because it's a niche market. Wolf Among Us was the perfect use of their mechanics. Mm-hmm. Wolf Among Us, you played it, right? Mm-hmm. Dude, Wolf Among Us, I did the Walking Dead games. I enjoyed them. And I did some of the Game of Thrones games. It feels very rushed. But Game of Thrones obviously makes a lot of sense for their system too, because it's a world where everything's about what you say to who and not getting caught. The problem lying for me with the game, sense. the problem for me with the Game of Thrones one is that because everybody was getting killed, I lost investment very quickly. Sure, because I was also, like, if everybody's getting killed, like the cynicism of it was just really killer for me. Like, I was right. like, ugh. But I, I, really, I can see why it worked for the mechanics. Though. Yeah, just as far as the gameplay. But I'm telling you, man, Wolf Among Us. I had another friend who recently played it. And he was just like. Uh, it, it's unbelievable it's and you get a lot a lot of time you're not i mean you do have the time limit but there are you know sometimes they do let you just stop and make a decision there's a lot more of those what and, i uh, it's i'd highly recommend it that's probably one of telltale's best if not their best i might pick it up when they put it throw it on sale oh again. it's been out for years but you could probably find it for five bucks still it's so with cheap telltale no i'm sorry with life is strange yeah you're playing as this girl who returns to her hometown to be part of this fancy school for photography. She goes to the bathroom and sees a girl get shot by another guy. I remember we talked about this a little rewinds, bit. I remember we talked about the podcast, though. Rewinds yeah. time and saves the girl. 
and now gets to use this power. Like if you think about in high school with all of the stress you had about fitting in the groups and meeting people and right. all the stuff that goes into being a high schooler. And we were all teenagers. Let's not shit on them. If you could win conversations or feel like you won a conversation by rewinding it and starting it over, what would you do if that's what you could do? And sure, in the short term, you can feel like you won a conversation. But what are the long term ramifications of the choices you're making regardless? And that for me was a very powerful feeling while I was playing Life is Strange. Is it's almost I could bad feel, to give me the option. It's, I could it's feel like more... I was winning the conversation by rewinding, the con- rewinding yeah. it. But I didn't know what the long-term effect would be. And that left me still feeling anxious. And that is very powerful. I was very invested in the game's narrative. Or like, for example. And you know, you could rewind and change it. Because you're like, you're like, what if I made the wrong choice? And you actually have the ability or, to go back here's and the change thing. it. Here's the thing. one fascinating thing they did in the first episode. So you got, this girl, you got this girl who's picking on you. Oh, yeah. And you can... Oh, the paint thing? You have the paint thing, right. You have to get past her so the game forces you to set up a situation by using your powers to so that a, a bucket of paint gets dumped on her and she's rich and she has fancy clothes and you have the your option kind of like a misfit she gets paid yeah on. she's she's not like like totally ostracized but she's definitely not one of the quote-unquote cool kids and gets you know so so it's for her it's a possible revenge moment so you have two choices that you can allow the game to preserve going forward you can either shit on her and take a picture of her and it's like smile for the camera yeah or you can be like, oh, that's so unfortunate. How sad for you. And be a little more compassionate. The yeah. bigger person. But here's the thing. You can do both. Yeah. Like, think about this. If you were in high school, there was a kid who was getting on your nerves. What if you could beat the shit out of that kid who was getting on your nerves? Rewind. And then rewind and then be the bigger person. What if you could vent the frustration you were having, then rewind it and be the bigger person after that? And what does that do to you? What does that person? What does that do to you? And so, those are the kinds of things in Life is Strange that I found incredibly fascinating while I was playing. Brain kind of touched on that tiny bit, being like, "What if you could go, re- you know, fix every little moment, pick everything perfectly after the fact?" It's like, what does that do to you? I also am kind of mad at Life is Strange for the way they ended the game. So they, I haven't finished it yet, but they, I, they use two songs that I have in my like library and stuff yeah the game does so, try to be very relevant i don't know if anybody listens to foals but their song spanish sahara is just super creepy and at the end of one of the life is strange endings they played the entire six minute song and i'm like y'all know y'all wrong for that like that was not right <laughs> and then in the other ending they use um obstacles by sid matters which they use in the first episode too but yeah man it's just such a fascinating game. It was like, especially for a, a company that is not known for taking risks. I mean, I know Square didn't technically produce it, but to put their name behind a game like that, I have to give them credit because they haven't done anything particularly risky in God, you know, since like Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> What's really fascinating is the strong response they've gotten. Yeah, it, and, it was a very positive response, and I think they should be rewarded for it. And so, like, they're like, we don't currently have any plans for a second season. And they're like, if we do do a second season, it will be new characters in a right. new setting. Likely. And I'm okay with that, too, because I'm, I'm just really floored by the approach that they took here. It was very refreshing for me. Because here's the other thing. There's, you, can't, you can't commit a lot of violence in Life is Strange. Yeah. But every game we play the primary form of interaction 
is violence. Like, as much as we talk about choices that you make in Dragon Age or whatever. At the end of the day, you're killing people. At the end of the day, you're just well, Dorian, beating the shit out of the people first time, with swords. I just had that uh, conversation. I didn't have it the first time through. Mm-hmm. Where Dorian makes fun of you for it. You're kind of like, you're like, I don't kill a lot of people, do I? And he's like, he's like, are you kidding me? Yeah. He's like, I'm surprised someone in dying your way to come talk to me. <laughs> he's like, he's like, he's like, you leave a mountain of corpses everywhere you go. What are you? He's just like, he's like, thinks it's absurd that you could possibly imply that you don't kill a lot of people. I love Dorian. But he's, he's like such a good. It's like you're right. Yeah, it, when he said that, I was like, I was like, man, that's how I feel like in every game. I love Dorian. <laughs> Master Chief punching his way through. Every game, I think I'm gonna romance someone else. I romance Dorian. It happens every time. What's funny is if you don't romance Dorian, he and Bull end up in a romance. Yeah. That's funny. I didn't catch it. I knew it was going to happen. I didn't catch it the first game. I guess I'll hear some it's something in the second game. so funny. I also love Josephine. Josephine is the best. Josephine's great. But that's one of the things that I really like about Dragon Age. Like In Dragon Age, two of your three advisors are women. Your third pseudo-advisor is a woman. And all of them respect each other. Yeah. And Cullen respects them, too. Like, if you ever hanging out on the war table, Cullen always defers to them when it's about what they do. Yeah. And he's and, funny. He's a funny character. I know you're saying you hated him. In the oh, yeah. Let me, let me talk about Cullen real quick. So Cullen, for me, was a character I hated because I felt like he was kept alive by, like, obnoxious fangirl sentiment. And this is not me shitting on girls or whatever. I don't want to make that clear. And you can but make this in the same way you'd get sick of the fanboys. I don't... I didn't like it's like it's the same thing with like the fanboys keeping like certain other things around. Like for here's the thing for me, Cullen didn't do anything right in Dragon Age Origins that meant that he needed to come back. He was just generically cute right. and was involved in one of the quest lines, but then he was in Dragon Age Two, just in the background, right. just mad all the time. He was boring as hell. But then, like, they they really did a great job with him during Dragon Age Inquisition. I was totally prepared. Well, they explain his character a lot. Yeah. They, they tell you a lot about his motivation and tell you about his, about how he became a Templar and, like, but I do love his kind of, like, I love how he's, he's not stuck up. He just doesn't know how to be anything but regimental. And they really give you hilarious interactions as a result. And the fact that, like, I read somewhere and someone brought up a really good point that he, like, wrecks you at chess, but, like, cannot play cards. Like, he's like, gets up in the strip poker game, whatever they're doing, and he ends up, like, down his boxers and has to awkwardly walk out. Because he's like, it's all about strategy. He's not about well, bluffs and lying. And here's he, another, can't, he can't be that person. And here's another thing. So, in this bit, you're having a, a, a touching <laughs> and moment. And his Red Jenny commentary is always so Yeah. Funny. He's like, no, this is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> That's literally, you can have him do one of your missions. He's like, no. <laughs> this is stupid. I'm not helping pranksters. This is a waste of our time. So... <laughs> Cullen in that chess match, you can have it's a it's a character building moment for you and him. Yeah. You have three options at the end. You can let Cullen win. You can cheat. You can cheat. Or you can play fair. Or you can right? play it fair. If you try to let him win, he beats you. If you try to cheat, he beats you. But if you play fair, he lets you win. Right. Or is it the other way? Like he always wins. I think if you play fair, it's implied he let you win. It's implied he let you win. And, that and when for he me, cheats, he kind of laughs because he was like just playing a Dorian, right? He was just kind of like, of course, you know. And he's fascinating in that regard because it By the says... By pause for the background noise. We had to do a different room and the uh, office is a little more active today than normal. <laughs> so sorry if you're like catching some it's, of that. Please continue. It's fascinating because he's... Because it says a lot about who he is. Like he cares about the fairness of what you're doing there. Yeah. 
And he respects you for that and allows you to win because of that. Yeah. And that says a lot about his character, too, which is, again, something you only know from the constant playthroughs that you do and reloading conversations and not that. Yeah. Or the Cassandra conversation, where Cassandra's tough as nails. Like, Sarah, one of the other characters, comments that she would stand behind Cassandra in front of anything. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so... She's super tough, and she has this sort of super, like, brawny thing about her. And in some ways, you would get into some sort of transphobic conversations, like, oh, she's just a man or whatever, with boobs or whatever. And you find out that she loves Varric's romance novels, well, as no, like, ever, sappy no, worst and cheesy as they are. Them. And she, when you, conf- when you find out that she's into it, she goes, why can't I like these sort of things? Why is that only reserved for women in frilly dresses? Yeah. Pretend like, you don't. He's like, he's like, it's, just, it's just so bad, but I I can't stop reading it. <laughs> and I love it when at the end of the conversation she glares at you and walks away like, him. pretend you don't know this about me. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just such a funny I was torn funny on thing. to tell Varric because I was like, I, was oh, like I okay, him. I did. I, I told Varric immediately. Well, my thing was I went, okay, I want her to get her book. But, like, is she going to be really upset? But I went, ah, she needs this dragged out. <laughs> and she's been picking on Varric for like, two oh, games. Yeah. So Varric's like, oh, 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 I am absolutely going to finish this book. And oh, I but want I want to be, be there, there <laughs> yeah. when you give it to her. And she just goes, he's like, well, I guess you don't want to oh, give it to <laughs> takes it from him. <laughs> it's just such a great moment. Cause it, and, like, it's the thing about, like, there are so many. Like, here's the thing. Like, we talk about it all the time there being enough women. There are enough women in Dragon Age. Yeah. That none of them are an inherent commentary on women themselves. Right. So you Actually, can really have didn't like Sarah. I really couldn't get behind so, her. I love Sarah. She reminds me of like half the lesbians I know. So Fair <laughs> she just sometimes like like I would try to have these good conversations with her, but I do kinda like you you know, the thing when she gets the you end up going to the contact and she kills the guy. I mean, remember the guy who sets the trap for you? And then, like, yeah, if and you're if trying you to kind of tell her, yeah, if you're kind of you like, don't look, kill you him put him. people in. No, but even so, if you tell her after, it's like, if you put people at risk, she goes, I'm sorry, are you lecturing me about what I do? You know, she just, like, stands her ground. Is like, don't tell me what to do. Like, you can't have, like, you can't talk to her in a moderate way. My you favorite, have to agree with her or she gets pissed. My favorite thing about Sarah. Which is interesting, that's real life. My favorite thing about Sarah is that she, <laughs> she very much tries to speak for common people. Yes. Yeah, it's, like, it's a very all honest these, effort. All these machinations that are going on in the world. And she's like, people don't care about that. And that's what's cool about the Red Jenny stuff. Is like, just march your troops through that town. It'll scare all the frilly people. And it'll make them talk to each other. So that the common people can get back to living their lives peacefully. Right. And that... It's like Colin's always like, don't tell her that we ended up getting a cool deal out of that. Don't tell her. <laughs> and he's always like, he's like, turns out that they actually have uh, opened up trade with us in this area. Don't tell, don't tell Sarah. <laughs> and that's what I've always liked about Sarah. And I've always liked how blunt she is about things. Yeah, like I want to like her more. She sometimes she just pisses me off. But I guess it's kind of that's that. I guess that really is her character. There, they're probably accomplishing the task because she is meant to be frustrating. And that's also for me what makes Dragon Age more fascinating sometimes than Mass Effect. So all your Mass Effect companions are military in yeah. their nature or highly professional right. in their nature. Your Dragon Age companions are not. And they, you can tell them I don't want you. That too. So you. They have their own interest. They're not politically aligned all the time. And so you end up with all of these 
Or they might just be like, oh, this bad thing happened and I don't want to die, so I'm going to help you out. <laughs> that's that's the thing I love about Dragon Age. And it's just weird for me overall with the, with the era we're entering now because I'm really burning out on a lot of franchises. I'm not really sure how I feel about Star Wars. We right. have a new Star Trek coming out and I'm a little burnt about that. And like before Jessica Jones came out, I was on the verge of quitting superhero stuff. Because, like, I saw the trailer for Batman versus Superman, <laughs> and that was so boring. Like, like it's a two and a half minute trailer, and I wasn't intrigued until Wonder Woman showed up. But then mm. it's just her standing there, and, and their corny line like "she with you," like "she's with you." I was like, "Oh god." Oh man, and that made me cringe so. So, but here's hard. the thing. So, like, that's for me going to be the movie. Yeah, ninety percent of the movie is going to be boring male shit I don't care about. And, oh, look, Wonder Woman. I do kind of want to see Eisenfratz, though, as Lex Luthor. I'm actually curious, because I actually think he's a very good actor. I, uh, I feel like he's he's falling into the new Ben Affleck role, where, like, he's a good actor, but he always plays a character you want to punch in the face. Right. So. <laughs> I just thought, like, you know, the thing is, apparent people first wrote him off as, an, as another Michael Sarah, and he's proven to be anything but. Oh, you know? man. It's Michael true. Sarah. That's the thing. Everyone kind of wrote him <laughs> off as like another Michael Sarah character because of um, Zombieland. And that was like one movie reacted like that. Mm-hmm. And I thought that like, I loved him in The Social Network. I thought it was a very nuanced performance. And I think that I have liked him in the Batman vs. Superman trailer. I just want to see his performance. Because like I do like his little like, he's got that like kind of like creepy voice. He messes with people. He's like, he's like, the red capes are coming. You know, he's like kind of like just... He knows he's screwing with your head. He's like yeah. enjoying it so much. I kind of want to see him in that villain role. I just I so, don't know. but other than that, I have zero interest in that film. I know, and that's that's what like I talked to you about this in the last podcast. Like I will watch on a flight. They, they've <laughs> mapped they've mapped out so many movies, and it's like I'm gonna have to go see so many movies I don't want to see. Right. So I don't to understand like, any of them. I thought Ant Man was awful. I didn't see it. Awful. And then Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. has not been as great. And I was like, man, if Jessica Jones is bad, I'm done. So last time we were on the podcast, we were talking about Game of Thrones. Yeah, and using trauma, rape as, a, as a tool for shock and as a tool for like... And one of the things I said... It's always that, violence against women. Right. And then I was like, they, they, exec- they, they utilize all this violence against women, but never deal with the consequence of that. Right. Jessica Jones is totally the aftermath. Like, mm-hmm. for those of you who are listening to this, who have friends, colleagues, or have personally experienced trauma, be very careful while you're watching Jessica Jones, because the entire show is about the psychological trauma of having that level of power stripped from you, and how it affects not only you, but the people you know, and other victims, and interacting with other victims, and how different people, how different people respond to this kind of trauma. It's just so, it's just so nuanced in the way they handle things. And so like Luke Cage is in this show, which is nice for me because yay, we're finally getting a black superhero that Marvel can't mm-hmm. blow up or shoot in the head. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it didn't stop them from trying in the show. But what's also fascinating for me about Luke Cage is, so Jessica is attracted to Luke and he's attracted to her. They have... They have an early sexual encounter where they don't know that the other person is powered. And at one point he accidentally hurts her and apologizes and then dials back their intimacy. And she's like, no, 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 don't stop. I won't break. And he's like, 
Yes, she will. Because he doesn't know that she's powered. But the next time they have an encounter, when they know the other person is powered, they just, they go ham on it and they break the bed that they're on. (laughs) And Luke is turned on by the fact that Jessica is stronger than him. Like, here you have a physically impressive and powerful black man who is not threatened by a woman being more powerful than him, but is actually excited to meet a woman who is more powerful than him. That, for me, was really cool. And what's also... Oh, that's spoiler stuff, but... At this point in the podcast, if you're concerned about spoilers for the last couple episodes of Jessica Jones, please skip ahead to whatever Greg makes a note for. But... Towards the end of the season, Luke breaks it off with Jessica because he finds out that she was involved in his wife's death. Yeah. And he felt disgusted that he had slept with her and she never told him that. Yeah. But then Kilgrave compels him to reconcile with Jessica. So we don't really know if Luke ever wanted to get back with Jessica. He disappears towards the end of the season and all. Yeah. But we never get to see how Luke felt about Jessica after all of that. Because everything he said to her about reconciling was what he was told to do. And then Marvel continues to disappoint me with its torture the black people thing. Right. Because they're torturing Luke. They're torturing her neighbor. I can't remember anyone's names right now. Mm -hmm. But the guy who's a drug addict is a drug addict because Kilgrave compelled him to. The, dete- the black detective in this gets shot in the head by the Steve Rogers lookalike winner. And it's just so awful. Like, granted, everyone gets fucking tormented in Jessica Jones. So it's not like certain people were immune to torture or whatever. Yeah. But ugh, Marvel, you can't... Like, like, Jessica Jones, you can have a conversation about how everyone got fucked up by Kilgrave, who encountered him. Yeah. But Marvel, please just... Just let some black people be happy for once. Like I would like to see black people thrive or non-white people thrive mm-hmm. in your work. Yeah. So please, like, stop. <laughs> just, <laughs> just like we are, we saw the trailer for Civil War, and at one point Tony's holding Rhodey, and I'm like, if Rhodey is dead, I'm done because there's three black folk in Civil War. Right. And the rule on television and movies is apparently no more than two can survive. Yeah. So you've got Black Panther, Falcon, and Black Rhodey. Panther being introduced in Civil War? Yeah. Okay. So Black Panther, Rhodey, and Sam Wilson are all going to be in Civil War. So you got three black dudes. And if these three black dudes are in well, the movie... Well, it's they're going to kill a white dude, so... Are they? <laughs> I mean, they're going to kill Captain... They're setting up Bucky to be new Captain America. Oh, I don't want that at all. I know, but it's what they've been hinting at. I don't want at. that at all. They hinted at Winter Soldier. Remember when he had it and he held the shield? Oh. It's been so much hinting. Oh. I, they're going to do it. They're going to kill Just, him. Because the end of his contract. Isn't that the end of Chris Evans' contract? That's why yeah. they did Civil War for that instead of Avengers. Oh, that's what I heard because they needed to meet his five contract, his five movie contract deal. God. They're going to do it. They're absolutely going to kill him. I believe it. I don't want... I don't want Bucky. But you're seeing Bucky like interact with the shield more. Like I just think that it's going to be if they're not going to kill him, I'd be kind of surprised. Cause they have the guy who plays Bucky out of the actor's name on a way less expensive contract. 
Yeah. And they have him for like three more movies after this. And I think Chris Evans is kind of like tired of Captain America. What's also funny for me. I might be speaking off turn on that. I'm not positive. I feel like I read that somewhere. No, you're right about the contract stuff. But what's funny for me, like in the trailer, it's funny watching fan reaction where where Steve goes, he's my friend. And then so he's like, I thought I was too. And then the fandom is like, what? Like, <laughs> excuse me, let me go back and read the receipts for this. Oh, no friendship to be found. That's also fascinating about Tony, though, is Tony... They're trying to make it more sympathetic, apparently, because the comic, he was, like, apparently just borderline evil. Like, everyone hated him in the comic during Civil War. Yeah. And I think they're trying to make him more sympathetic. Tony is just fascinating, because they've humanized him so much outside of the Avengers films, because the Avengers films have not done his character much justice. But he's been on an interesting arc in terms of his development. And Tony does see things through his own lens. Right. So Tony's like, oh, I thought we were friends. And then Steve's like, dude, you, I don't like you. Like, were you not paying attention <laughs> during the last film? You almost fucked the planet. Yeah. Because of your ego. Yeah. You didn't talk to your friends. You didn't talk to your team when you were trying to replace us. And it literally had your personality. <laughs> right? Like, that's fascinating and all. But for me, it's still just... Ugh, Ultron is such a better villain. Yeah, I'm just... Those trailers made him out to be the greatest villain they were going to have, by far. And then he was so disappointing. So disappointing. The trailers made him look so good. So creepy. And David Spader as the as the uh, voice, I was like so excited. And then I was just so let down. But here's the thing. Ugh, so, last time we were on the podcast, we were both talking about how much we like Daredevil. I will tell you this now, even though you haven't watched Jessica Jones, by the time I finished Jessica Jones... I've heard some people say it's better. I thought it made Daredevil look cheesy and mm-hmm. petty. Mm-hmm. That's how... Like, I feel like Daredevil is... He is kind of shown to be petty in the show. I think, like, it's kind of... A, that's why I think... Uh, oh, what's his friend's name? Foggy. Foggy. Yeah. I keep thinking, Foggy's, like, kind of calling him out. You know, just being like, you're running around... Exactly. ...in a mask, and... distributing justice like a moron. Which isn't the first time you've heard that narrative before, but the way he does it, he is so incredulous. He's just like, are you psychotic? What is wrong with you? Like, Speaking of Foggy, last time I was on here, I talked about how queer subtext yeah, yeah, would have yeah. been a really fascinating thing to explore with that. In this, in Jessica Jones, they like you have Carrie Ann Moss playing Jerry Hogarth, who was gender bent to a woman this time instead of a man. And she's a lesbian. Yeah. She's an awful character. <laughs> I mean, Carrie Ann Moss plays the shit out of the role. It was great to see her again because I haven't seen her really since Trinity in The Matrix. But her character is a terrible person. And that was fascinating. But they also don't ignore... They don't, like, not gay that that entire show. So, like, you, if you want to read whatever you want to read between Jessica and... Oh, my God, what is her friend's real name? I want to say Patsy, but that's the character she plays. I hate when I don't remember names on the podcast. But... <laughs> God damn it. This is making me so mad. It lends to the authenticity. You know what? I'm just going to keep powering through. So. <laughs> I was going to say, we will need to wrap Jessica, up relatively yeah, soon. That's, that's right. Fine. Sorry, I don't mean to no, be cutting no, you off. Fine, no, go ahead. Fine. I want you to finish your thought. So I'm going to finish my thought on that. And I'm going to take one more comment about Halo. And then we can end it. No, please so, do. So. Jessica Jones just does not ignore the potential for queer subtext throughout the entire show. And that's the thing for me. That's all I've asked for a long time is just don't pretend that that doesn't exist in your work. And then, 
the last thing I'll comment on Halo. Sorry. Before we go. These guys are yelling in the hall. Jesus Christ. The last thing I'll comment on Halo. We were talking about monetization a little bit earlier with episodic content versus AAA content. And I'm commenting on microtransactions while we're here. So, the gaming community at large panned Evolve when it released because the gaming press was like, there's $130 of DLC in this game. What the fuck? And I was like, but almost all of that is cosmetic. Only $25 of that is future content coming down the road. The other $116 or whatever is cosmetic stuff. Yeah. But Halo now... Has, a con- has an entire microtransaction system built into it. Yeah. With Warzone. Now, I love Warzone, and I'm not buying all these packs and stuff. I like just, packs and stuff. Yeah, I just buy it with playing the game. But why is that a negative thing? Like, rec packs... If people are buying all these rec packs to spawn these kinds of weapons in-game, fuck it. <laughs> okay. Dude spent $100, so he has... He can spawn a tank at will. Tank counterplay is straightforward in the game. <clears throat> and he has to retrack level 6 to even use a tank anyway. It's not a huge deal for me. Because counterplay in the game is fair. And real shit. If somebody's going to spend $400 so they can use a fancy weapon, more power to them. You know what? Fine. Power to the company <laughs> to take their money. But that's the thing, like, if you're also buying them to get the sort of cosmetic you want. So, like, this past weekend they did this whole rec pack with the Halo Championship Series where they say some of that money is going to fund the prize pool for the arena competitive stuff. That's fine. I I don't care. Like, that's purely cosmetic. It doesn't affect the game. If somebody wants to spend $10 on cosmetic stuff in the game... Whatever. Remember when freaked out horse armor in Oblivion? Remember I was freaking out about that? Exactly. Like, like, who cares? It's like, they are paying for a cosmetic in a multiplayer game that will not affect gameplay. When I got Dragon Age Inquisition, when I bought it, it was $20, it was $22.50 for the, like, Mm -hmm. extra thing, which had no extra missions or anything. $22.50, it gave me, like, all these little silly things, like, you got, like, a special horse, you got a special throne. I was like, ah, the game's so cheap, I'll just get the extra crap, why not? I spent $22.50, I was like, whatever, and some of it was fun. I had like this giant dragon head in the middle of my throne room. I was like, this is hilarious. And I see it all the time. I'm like, eh, that was worth the laugh. There you go. And I got to ride around on like a weird dragon monster thing as a horse that like screeched. I was like, this is so stupid and funny. Like I thought it was actually really entertaining. <laughs> we had a conversation about something in Dragon Age. About like Vivian being overpowered. Yeah. Like if you spec a knight enchanter a certain way, they can solo the game. Yeah. And people are like, well, that's overpowered. And I'm like... It's a single-player game. There's nothing overpowered. Yeah. You can just play the game. The only thing that's overpowered is like if that becomes the optimal path that everyone ends up getting stuck into because everything else sh- is shitty. Yeah. But it's like, that's who Vivian is. Vivian has always thrived on her own. It is not a surprise to me that when shit goes wrong, Vivian will just get the goddamn thing done. That fits her character. And you're playing a game that's all about your squad and you want to actively play the game by yourself? Very fascinating. Says a lot about you. <laughs> so fair enough. That's for me. Like the conversation there about that kind of stuff. I always do. My ideal. I only had rogues around because like I like because the AI. Like I don't like doing the top down command fighting. It just takes way too long. It makes the game so much slower. I only but... do it at the beginning of fights. Like I like all right, ranged people go over here, and then I'll 
play who exactly. I think is fun. And, but they, I wish I have rogues around. Like if you're playing or unless you're playing the rogue, I think the rogue's kind of a waste because like the AI is not going to play it smart enough to do these not like two thousand damage moves. Not at all. But so I like to doing two warrior, two mage because like. My guys were always shielded with barrier. Like they just never didn't have shields on. The two guys were also putting up guard. So basically, the two warriors were unkillable. Black and Wall were basically just slamming the ground. Blackwall is unkillable, and that's why people got mad during one of the DLCs because we were watching Blackwall get like two shot and we were like, "What the fuck is going on?" <laughs> oh, I did it with um, Iron Bull. See, I was a two-handed guy, so mm-hmm. basically, Iron Bull, I was just like slamming hammers into the ground as like. Solus and Dorian were just bloop, 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 just shielding us. It was just... So Solus... So, so you're aware that Solus disappears the at the end of the game. Well, it's just a little... And he sequence. pops up at the... In the Trespasser DLC. And the joke in the trailer for it was he turns around and goes, I'm sure you have questions. And the fans are like, yeah, let's start with this. Where's that level four dragon armor I gave you, motherfucker? He disappeared with my armor. I put a dragon's tooth in that armor for you, you (laughs) asshole. Where is it? (laughs) That's ridiculous. But, oh man. Well, anything else, man? No. I think we covered a lot of good territory and I'm looking forward to doing more. I'll say that right now, I'm in a good place with a lot of the media that we're engaging with there are enough tv shows on that i'm happy there's a lot of groups that seem to be making like serious overtures yeah and i think that's important i think seeing it and seeing them be popular yeah is awesome and it's interesting seeing a lot of stuff happening with games it's cool to see developers and publishers recognizing that the tried and true formula is failing and that catering to a wider audience is more profitable and it's created a lot of fun stuff in video games. I'm having a good time again. I'm having a good time with some books. I'm having a good time with some movies and television. I'm sure we'll probably revisit Star Star Wars slash Star Trek in a future <laughs> podcast. That'd be great. Like a couple months after Star Wars, I come back ranting about it. Or you Either... come back and you go, I loved it. That'd be wouldn't nice, it? wouldn't it? That'd be nice. Like that's the hope. I hope the next time we talk on this I podcast, think, I'm I happy think, about Star Wars. <laughs> I do think one thing that I would be very surprised is that J.J. Abrams has proven the ability to mix practicals and CGI's. And I think if that's the only thing he fixes, if the story is mediocre and mixes with the original trilogy, but I think the fact that visually it went off the rails and story-wise it went mm-hmm. off the rails, and I'm like, he can fix the visual. And the like, encouraging, for me, that's important. Yeah, the encouraging thing for me is that he didn't write all of this by himself, that there's a whole team out there. And that and each movie's got a different director. That's going to be interesting. That will be fun. I'm curious to see I'm what happens. I'm curious to see other people's takes on it. I'm much more interested in Rogue One right now because of the cast for that. Like, I want to see Donnie Yen in a Star Wars film. Right. <laughs> it's going to be, yeah, Rogue One looks interesting. Yeah. All right, man. Well, thanks again so much. This is a blast. Always is. I'm glad you invited me back. This Dude, is are you kidding? Fun. I'll always invite you back. You're always <laughs> welcome. You know that, man. Yeah. No, hey, maybe yeah. one time we talk about your uh, business because I think it's really interesting because, like, I, you know, just for those of you who want to listen in the future, it's, you know, what you do at the most surface level almost sounds a little bit like house flipping, but it's so much more intricate. Right. It's such, like, there's a much more, like, social wherewithal and there's a very specific demographic and world you're playing in. Right. in a very specific city with very specific needs yeah, post-Katrina so, that I think I'd be loving. I really would love to talk to you about that at some point because I think it's just a very interesting subject. Yeah, no, we can talk about that because there's 
The simple just is, like, flippers care about their bottom line, and rehabbers like us care about the product we leave behind for greater security for all involved. It's like, cause you are flipping a house, but not with the negative, like that's, it has a very negative connotation. That's not about flipping a house. Right. It's about, are you doing it as fast and cheap as possible is the problem. Right. That's what a lot of these people go for. Our two biggest prime things are efficiency and safety. Those are our big keys when we do this sort of stuff, because we care about the people who are going to have to live in the house. And it reflects on you. We care about our brand. And it really saves you a lot of lawsuit anxiety when you know you do things the right way all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Some of all those crappy Texas contracts that came after Katrina. Ugh. So bad. Uh, look, I'm not going to comment on specific contractors. And it so. is your business. I was going to say, I was say you, it is bad for business for you to do that. So I understand. All right, man. Well, thanks so much again. This is fantastic. Thanks, Greg. All right, man. Cheers.